0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Hausman. I'm an assistant professor in the history department at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota, and I'm your host for today's interview. And I'm speaking today with Charlotte Cote. Dr. Cote is a professor of American Indian Studies at the University of Washington and is the author of the new book, A Drum in One Hand, Sakai in the Other, Stories of Indigenous Food Sovereignty from the Northwest Coast, which came out with the University of Washington Press in 2022 and I'm pleased to say last year won the Donald Fixico Award for the best book in American Indian and Canadian First Nations history, from the Western History Association. Welcome to the New Books Network, Charlotte. Good to have you here. Thank you. Good to be here. First, why don't we just hear a little bit about who you are? What is your background? And I'm especially interested in uh, how you became interested in Indigenous studies and in the study of food in particular.
1: Yes. Well, Uklama Hotis Of, Sisha Aksuma Uh, Tsuma'as. So in my language, I'm just sharing with you my traditional name, which is My Maiolth. It comes from our whaling heritage, my family's whaling heritage. We are, um, uh, my community is on the west coast of Vancouver Island in British Columbia, Canada. My community is Tsishat, and we're part of the larger nation of Channel. And the area where we come from, the um, uh, area that's right next to what is now known as the, the city of Port Alberni, is called Sumas. And it is the name of the river that runs through our community. And it is. Um, uh, I write a, a lot about this river, the Tsuma'as, because it's really important to us as as marine-based cultures and cultures that rely on salmon, which um, uh, come up that river and um, feed our feed our community. So I've really been interested in. Um, In food, being raised in my traditional foods, what we call ha'um, our food, or ha'um shtup, which is a, a variety of foods. And this book really came about as a jumping off point from my previous book, The Spirits of Our Wailing Ancestors, where I discuss how whaling served very important social, economic, and ritual functions that have been at the core of Macaw and New societies or um, societies throughout our histories. And although, um, as I, I say in the book, although we really don't need whale for subsistence, um, as we have all these other foods uh, in our diets right now, um, it really is important to Bring these foods back into our cultures, into our diets, as a way of strengthening community, as a way of of really addressing some of the health issues that we have since we started moving towards a more Western diet and moving away from foods that have kept us healthy since time, um, you know, since time immemorial. And so, I really am a believer in the motto. You are what you eat, and throughout my lifetime, I've really made a great effort to stay connected to our haum by processing our foods, um, harvesting. Uh, I'm an avid um, berry picker, harvester, and I've been a fisher since I was a since I was quite young. And uh, you know, when I was a little girl, when I was eight and nine years old, I would process food um, or process salmon with my with my mother. Um, through jarring salmon, canning salmon. And today I have maintained those um, processing traditions as well as smoking salmon and salmon being the main um, important food in our diets. And so I really feel fortunate that I've been raised to be very health conscious because throughout my lifetime, I've seen dramatic decrease in the health of my community and the health of many of my relatives, as well as in other Indigenous communities. And I, you know, we, we used to eat such a well-balanced and healthy diet, and it really made me think about that. What brought us down this unhealthy road? And that really was what sparked, that question was really what sparked the research and writing of this book. Um, and it really is a question that becomes important to our large global, you know, our, our global society as we face major health crises. Um, you know, especially seeing that in the the worldwide pandemic that we all just experienced. So it really is a question that all of us as part of this larger global community should be thinking about
0: yeah and and as we'll talk about uh you know in, in the the conversation comes so much of this book is, is about you know specific people in a specific place but as you're saying you know this book also it speaks to just like you you just said larger global issues right it's something that that, that affects everybody and I, I really took that away from the book as well and it sounds like these questions about food and connections between food and culture and health and place that these are all things that you've been interested in interested in for a very long time, that that these are questions that you've been addressing throughout your research. So it sounds like, you know, when thinking about what brought you to the topic of this book, that really you're going back to questions that you've always been thinking about. Is that fair to say?
1: Yeah, I think so. And it it really was my whaling book that um, where I really could explore those in further depth in looking at the, um, the nutritional value of whale meat and oil and how those um, really were a mainstay in our diets. And it made me really think about, that was my last chapter of that book, and it really made me think about that with why, you know, our, what what happened to us? What, what happened to us so that, you know, it's rare that you get um, to meet people who are still, um incorporating traditional foods in, into their diets and and maintaining those connections to those foods. So that prompted the research that I then started doing from 2009 up until my book was um, published in 2022, being able to really explore those um, those questions in more depth.
0: Well, let's talk about place, because place is so important to to the story that you tell you, to the, to the topics that you're addressing here. Can you tell us about the Pacific Northwest generally, and specifically about the region that, that you're talking about here around Vancouver Island? And I'm curious about its native history and the kinds of traditional food waste that you find in this region. hmm
1: Yeah, well, our, our, my new channel community of Dishat is situated within that larger area defined as the Northwest Coast, an area that... Has been characterized as the land of of salmon and cedar, which it, it really is, and it really is the home of some of the most diverse and richest indigenous cultures in the world. Um, we were nations that flourished in the abundances of marine mammals and and um, land based foods as well in this dense vegetation in areas that really had very mild winters and you know and as we know what spring and and summers and um it really was that biological diversity that cr- created an abundance of foods for us so that we could say that we were really wealthy when it came to the kinds of foods that we had that there were many different varieties that we can choose from and so our my people the Tzishot, new tunnels and other coastal nations harvested a variety of of foods through fishing hunting gathering cultivating plants and medicines. And it really was the harvesting and cultivation um, preparation, sharing, uh, trading of these uh, of these foods that was conducted within our, you know our, our cultural values of values based on Isak, which in in my language is respect of UAthluk, which means caring, caring for for the everything around you and within reciprocity and and interdependency. Um, Our food systems really function in these very healthy interdependent relationships um, with our environment and were maintained through that participation in these these traditional land and food systems. The um, kinds of foods and quantities of foods that were available Really depended on keeping that symbiotic relationship intact, um, so it was maintained through this uh, what we say is ecological knowledge or indigenous ecological knowledge, um, keeping the, that that uh, relationship strong as we um, maintained those connections as stewards and protectors of those ecosystems and of our environment. So. When you think about traditional foods and the importance of them, they really are enmeshed in those ecosystems in which we thrive, uh, thrived in, and which we continue to strive for as we, um, as we, as we try to um, maintain those relationships to those foods and those traditions.
0: And there's a phrase that that you've used a couple times that that's, that comes up a lot in the book that we're going to be talking about uh, uh, through the rest of this conversation. Uh, that mm-hmm. maybe we should pause and define in case people are not familiar with it. Can you explain what exactly food sovereignty is? What we mean when we talk about food sovereignty?
1: Yeah, well, it is it it is a um, a concept that you hear a lot today and. It um, at its most basic level, it means the right of people to healthy and culturally appropriate food produced through through ecologically sound and sustainable methods. And it it really came about in the mid 1990s with um, a group called La Via Campesina, um, which represents small scale farmers, peasant farmers, indigenous communities, um, or organizing in this um, global. Um, agri- agri- ag- excuse me, agrarian movement, and um, they really became the strongest voice in radical opposition to what they described as a globalized neoliberal model of agricultural food production. And the movement linked the growing food, economic, and environmental crises to the continued growth of a very industrial, capital-intensive, and corporate- corporate-led model of agriculture. So they, the the movement then really began looking at ways that um, we could come together to address those concerns that we had about the industrialization of our foods, the way that food has now become over-processed, and the kinds of foods that have led to a lot of the food insecurity that we see in our larger global society. And so in 1996, at a conference, the La Via Campesina um, really started looking at um, these food regimes and what kind of food regimes could we Um, Could we incorporate that would speak to those and to challenge some of these um, state led food security programs that were to end global hunger, but that were doing nothing about it, that we're actually where we're seeing more food insecurity, even though these um, these food regimes that were being created through this, these state-led models, we're supposed to be addressing it. And so the conference introduced that new concept, food sovereignty, and established 11 principles that were integrated into a position paper that was then um, brought forward at the World Food Summit in Rome in 1996. And so food sovereignty really is a, a, a grassroots demand for the uh, a rights-based organization to food system grounded in gender uh, equality, agroecology and solidarity. And so it's really bringing that conversation back to these um, communities that had been either ignored Or that had been pushed out of those larger conversations so that we start looking at what we're doing in our communities and us as smaller um, uh, communities uh, could address those concerns on our own.
0: And in the book, you describe the, the relationship, the links between uh, this idea of food sovereignty with health and with decolonization as well. you explain the kind of connection between these three ideas?
1: Mm, yeah, yeah. Good question. Um, enacting food sovereignty for us as indigenous peoples really is positioned within our struggles for decolonization and self-determination. It's really central to restoring health and wellness in our communities. Again, you know, Indigenous peoples face the higher rates of, rates of lifestyle disease than any communities throughout the world, and so reviving and restoring our Indigenous foodways is really directly linked to decolonization by resisting um, Western foods, unhealthy foods, foods that were forced on us. And what I say, what I refer to in my, um, my first book as culinary imperialism and uh, food hegemony. Um, you know, resisting those those kinds of foods that really brought us down that unhealthy path. So re-indigenizing our diets is at the heart of our cultural resurgence and revitalizations movements we are witnessing in our communities today, revitalizing our food traditions, also corresponding to some of the other um resurgence um efforts we're seeing around language revitalization cultural revitalization and so the indigenous food sovereignty movement is really positioned with this within a larger anti-colonial uh struggle to decolonize our homelands Um, we're seeing a lot of that in the land back movement that we're experiencing today it also really means decolonizing our diets and decolonizing the way we think about food and uh rebuilding and strengthening those cultural and sacred relationships that we have to the plants and the animals that provide us with food and also to those ecosystems that uh provided us with these healthy and nutritious foods so it's re restrengthening those relationships that in many ways were destabilized because of colonization and the continual perpetuation of settler colonialism so in my book i really examine and explore what healing is in in many different ways what does it mean to be healthy not just Um, physically healthy, but emotionally healthy, spiritually healthy, something that we in my community call teach ak." teach ak really refers to um, holistic health. Um, And that would really tie into also our relation, our relationship to the land, to our NISMA, our relationship to the plants and animals that provide us with food and shelter and clothing and also our relationships to each other because revitalizing our food traditions also restores and and builds and strengthens the social bonds that we have to each other because a lot of our food practices are people just getting together and and going berry picking or fishing together and um and which is something that I explore in my book as well, it really, if we start looking at these things as gifts instead of resources, that maybe it'll start changing our understanding of the connections that we have to everything around us and trying to rebuild that in a very healthy way and in a, in a very positive way. So decolonization really necesset- necessitates that that healing, you know, healing ourselves, healing our our these relationships and um, being good medicine for each other. Something that um, the wonderful scholar and ethnobotanist Robin Kimmerer talks about in her book, Braiding Sweetgrass*, which I refer to a lot in my book, because it's it's just an amazing, um, amazing um uh, book that talks about uh, reciprocity and the importance of that and and seeing everything around you as gifts rather than as resources and so I really I, I really think that's important when we have these conversations around food sovereignty health and decolonization
0: and one of my big takeaways from the book is is that you know that when, when when thinking about the process of, of decolonization, you know, food is, is maybe not the only thing, not the only step to that process, but it has to be one of the central ones, right? That it really is at the heart of so much of what goes into what we talk about, when we mean decolonization, that food is really at the heart of that. So I think in the book, you do a really good job of really emphasizing that. One. Yeah. Let's talk a bit about, about sand, yeah. which are, is so much at the heart of this region's uh, indigenous life and food culture and is so central to the book itself. Can you explain how salmon and really the the whole journey of harvesting and processing and sharing salmon, how all of that reinforces cultural bonds between people and between people and the salmon themselves?
1: yeah and and thank you again because i i could never talk about food sovereignty without talking about salmon um it really and and i i share a lot of stories in my book about salmon about salmon harvesting and fishing with my sister it's so important to who i am as a, as a shot person and even though i live here in in seattle I spend my summers back in my community and any chance I can get I'm back in my community and it's it's good that I'm not that far away that it, it you know it doesn't take me long to uh, to get there and to keep me connected to my community and you know you ask any coast or indigenous person from the northwest coast what food they like or what food they they have eaten you know throughout their lives. And the first one they mention is always salmon, varieties of salmon. We have many different species of salmon here along the Northwest Coast. Salmon really is, a, is it at the heart of our stories and our shared experiences. And it's a foundation of my culture, and I know it is for other um, indigenous cultures along the Northwest Coast. And it has also remained a very important nutritional food in our diets. Um, I share stories about my family, my community. I share stories about our um, our communal fish day, how we get together and uh, uh, as a community in Zishat every Sunday morning, and we have a um, a community seine net and all the fish that that we. Um, that we we get throughout that morning. At the end of the day, we share it with each other. We make sure our elders get their fish, and it um, really um, I, I that the, those are some of my earliest memories as a little girl going to fish day with my mother and getting our fish and going back home and uh, cleaning the fish. I'm, I I think I was eight the first time my mother gave me a sharp knife and said, "Here you go." <laughs> time for you to learn and uh it it has really um kept us connected not just to those salmon but to us, that river that as i say in my book runs through our community life like a life vein and uh it really um uh it it, it, it really makes you uh understand and appreciate the space and place that you were raised and where you come from then you know the northwest coast really providing an exceptionally rich and nurturing environment for salmon as well as a sustainable balance between salmon and and human human ecosystems um which evolved over thousands of years into a very respectful and reciprocal relationship uh, salmon is uh, um, an important food for us. It's also important food for other um, animals in in our area. We have a lot of black bears. I tell people that if they come to our community, they'll see bears walking around the community, like you usually see dogs walking around the community. There are black bears everywhere. You walk out your back door, they're just hanging out, or they're up in the in the fruit trees in our in our in our community. But in just thinking about this and about how black bears, you know, they they eat that salmon and then they go back into the forests And then, you know, that that salmon is brought there through those bears and it becomes part of the nutrients, the nitrogen that then feeds the other plants and and trees for their growth. And so it, it really is. Important in in contributing to that healthy forest ecosystem and the continual um, that keeping that continued relationship with salmon alive. It was our primary feeds. It was our primary food source, and um, as a result, we do have in the northwest coast um, certain ceremonies so that we can honor those salmon, honor the spirits of those salmon for bringing their physical forms to us. Um, We have in our coastal indigenous belief system that everything has a spirit. And so everything you do in that environment around you, you honor and, and provide sacred prayers so that you keep those harmonious relationships intact. And so the spirit of the salmon, we believe that when we honor them in that way, that we, we, conduct these important prayers that they will continue to come to our community and continue to visit us and provide their physical forms to us as food. And salmon is very high in protein, wild salmon, very high. I mean, we do have issues along the Northwest coast with um, with um, um, pen, pen farming, salmon pen farming, but we have the wild salmon, very high in protein, low in saturated fat, high in omega-3 fatty acids, which numerous studies have been done on essential fatty acids that are derived from both fish and sea mammal oil, which I discussed in my, in my whaling book. Um, oils that reduce risks of heart disease, type 2 di- uh, diabetes, um, they can reduce inflammation. Um, A lot of these lifestyle diseases that we're seeing in our our communities, as well as in the larger global um, larger global community and research found that their consumption also supports our mental health, that they can reduce risks of depression, dementia, psychosis, ADHD. Um, This is something that I'm I'm doing some research on now. It's an area that I'm exploring for the next book project I'm working on. And so we've really been fortunate as an Indigenous community that we've been able to keep those relationships with salmon, that we've been able to have salmon every year, even though every year, you know, we we never know if the salmon are going to return um there's been so many changes to um to our environment as a result of climate change that we never know so we never take that for granted um we've really fought to keep all, those connections uh, to salmon uh, we've um gone through lawsuits legal cases against the canadian bc governments asserting our title and rights to our fish resources um um, and having the the right the the right recognized in um, uh, in the by the federal government and in the courts and in 2009 we were successful in a decade long of legal battling. Um, to finally win a court case that recognized that right. And so we have many of those legal challenges, as many uh, other problems, you know, pollution um, and water contamination or contamination of our environments, climate change, as I mentioned, um, uh, urban development, pipelines, all of these you know, these developments that are impacting the Northwest coast, we're seeing the warming of our waters as a result of climate change and ocean acidification causing different species to come into the, into our waters now and, uh, and really, um, changing that, uh, marine, um, that marine scape and the, um, uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, uh, marine marine net Atlantic salmon aquaculture threatening our wild Pacific salmon as well. We've seen some issues recently here in in the Washington state area where one of those pens collapsed and all of those fish um, um, ended up in in, in the uh, um, in the open waters and. The tribes here in Washington state worked with uh, with state um, officials in recapturing those salmon. And there are now new policies that are being implemented in both British Columbia and Washington state that are limiting. And in many ways, B.C. is trying to um, elimit uh, having these these kinds of um, um uh, fish farms in our coastal waters, just because of the threats to our uh, wild salmon and to those ecosystems.
0: And I think you you just did a great job of illustrating how something like a question of food sovereignty in you know one part of the world can connect to these much larger global issues as well, right? How you know it's, it's ensuring. Access to and and a safe environment for salmon can connect all the way up to something as global as climate change as well, right? So that the, yeah. these it, it it shows how interconnected this whole web really is. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it really does, and. You know, it, and it's not, it's, it's the food, the changes to the, you know, what's happening in these communities, but also seeing the rising of the waters where I grew up, where I was born and raised in my community, it's now designated flood zone. I mean, it, it just really makes you think about. The future and what kind of future we will have, especially if those changes are so significant that we don't have salmon coming in our communities anymore. And there have been some, some, um, uh, coastal communities that didn't get salmon this summer. And I'm, I can't remember. Uh, I was talking to a friend of mine who was telling me, and I can't remember the name of the community, but they were devastated because they, every year, every year. Since, you know, since time immemorial, they've had salmon and for the first time they did not have a salmon run. And it really, really impacts us when we start seeing those significant changes to to our world, plus the flooding of the uh, of our our homelands. Uh, There have been communities along the northwest coast, as well as in Alaska, that have had to move entire communities that have had to move because of the shifts in our, because of the shifts in the, the water levels as a result of climate change. So, um, yeah, there's just been a lot of different challenges that we've been experiencing, making it really, really hard to maintain those those connections to our foods and to be stewards of our lands
0: as well. Uh, you were speaking a moment ago about how some of your earliest memories, some of your earliest memories of a of, of family revolve around salmon. And in the book, you write a good amount about your, your sister, Gail, who's also active in working for food sovereignty. Can you talk a bit about your sister and the, 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 the work that she's doing the community garden project, for instance, that she founded and how it ties into the kind of overall story that you're telling in the book?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I do. Uh, I, I do talk about my sister a lot and, she loves teasing me and saying, uh, yeah, I should have, ju- you should have just said, this is a book about me. <laughs> I said, yeah, now that I've looked at all the photos I have in there, I think I have more photos.
0: And she has a whole <laughs> chapter plus, like, you know, like <laughs> she's, she's not
1: wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but she is an inspiration. She really, really is. And, you know, she's worked in her position as the Cishat crisis care and wellness coordinator for the last 20 years. And um, it, it, when she applied for this, this grant, uh, she applied for a $20,000 grant 2014, so 10 years ago. Um, from the um, Vancouver Islands Health uh, Initiative program, which she wanted to use to cultivate a garden, and she and I had talked about this for a while because we have fished together since since the '80s. She and I have uh, been fishers and one of the one of the first um, all female fishing teams out on on the water and. Um, We've maintained that tradition and um, have always felt the the importance of staying connected to our foods and to being healthy. I mean, she's worked very hard at at trying to maintain a um, a healthy life. She has battled um, um, rheumatoid arthritis. Um, she's Finally, with changes in her diet, um, being able to keep her fibromyalgia under control. So, she knows many people in our community who are facing some similar health issues. So, she wanted to get to to apply for a grant so she could cultivate a garden in our community that would provide healthy foods to our community members. And so, she um, received the funds. She got a half acre plot of land um, and uh, for the garden the, our community, our, our band council, tribal council gave her this area where she could cultivate this garden. And she was really particular on where she wanted it and what land she wanted to cultivate it on. And when she told me what land she got, I was really surprised because it was on the grounds of a former boarding school a boarding a, a federal Indian boarding school um called the Alberni Indian Residential School that was built right in the middle of our community. And it was built in the middle of the community with a um six foot high chain link fence all the way around this around this school it was still there when i was a kid although i never went to this school because my generation was already being um uh, sent to public school but the generations above me went to that school and so the school was still open and uh, a lot of the children that were going to the school when i was little were um children from indigenous communities in very isolated areas many of them from northern british columbia that were brought down and placed in that school for eight months usually ten months out of the year because many many of them couldn't um their parents did not have the funds to bring them back home and so she wanted to build the garden there and she had hired um one of our community members aaron woodward who's married to um he's married to one of our community members to help her oversee the planting and maintenance of the garden and uh so she the first year she brought me to the garden and she told me she said you know when we try to put a shovel in that ground you couldn't even the dirt was so so hard you 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 couldn't even you know you couldn't even put that shovel in it was it was really, really hard to get that that plot of land uh, to the point where they could start um, planting. And I said, but why? Why would you want it here? And uh, so it started this conversation about what children experienced in that school. There was a lot of trauma in that school. There's been a lot written about it. And I write about it in my book as well. When I talk about Gail's Garden, that... Um, she felt, you know, many of those children carried the trauma. A lot of former um, former um, uh, students of that school who are now adults still come to that place because when that school shut down in the late 70s, um, the New Channel Tribal Council built their offices there. We took over that space and, um, and got rid of all the buildings, ex- except for one, there's still one. Uh, for those um, boarding school buildings there and she said um, people come there and they still it triggers them it triggers them because that's all they see i i want to remove those triggers um we have that trauma in us as indigenous peoples from what we experience the the physical emotional and in many cases sexual abuse that those children experienced in that school um i want to I want to change that landscape. We are healing through that garden. That land is healing by providing that that those vegetables and and herbs and fruit for us. And it was such a amazing, amazing way to look at it. And I won, that's when I said, I'm going to write about your garden, Gail. I'm going to come back every year. I'm going to look at your garden and take photos fo- photos of it because I really think what you're doing is so important because trauma is so deeply embedded in our collective experience as Indigenous peoples. And, you know, if you examine the Tsisha Garden, community garden project through this lens of decolonization and community revitalization, um, it really tells this story of not the pain that we experience from that school, but a story of health and healing and community empowerment because of what she's done to change the, that landscape. And, um, she, it was many lessons learned at first. The community weren't really behind it. They're like, What do we need a garden? They're not, it's not traditional food. What do, what do we need that for? And she just kept my, my sister's a very persistent and determined person. <laughs> and she kept saying, Well, no, I'm going to do it. I'm going to, I'm going to find a way to get them involved. She started getting the youth involved, and the, the youth loved going there and helping out and so that's kind of her door into the you know into the homes and uh, she um started um uh the the first time that she harvested everything there she got everybody together at our community center and she made these nice baskets for the elders with all the different kinds of foods the carrots the Um, cucumbers tomatoes kale and she made these really nice baskets and uh she and i i talk about this in my book two of the elders that came in picked up their baskets and said thank you and they were walking out and they were looking at each other with this strange look and she says what's wrong and they said what is this and they pointed to the kale at the top of the basket and she said it's kale and they said what do you do with it (laughs) And Gail says, "You eat it," <laughs> and they said, "How do we eat it?" And it dawned on her, you know, that school not didn't just take us from our families and our communities; it took us away from our foods and and the understanding of how to be healthy. So she started lifestyle programs and um, downloaded all these healthy recipes to for um, to share with everybody and how to cook kale, obviously. <laughs> and um continue to work with them and develop more programs she now has a um she she got a grant for um for equipment for a gym so she now has a gym in our community she brings people in to do yoga and meditation and she does um, not just um uh foods cooking workshops but she also does processing workshops a lot of the young people don't know how to jar salmon or can salmon or can their food so she does those kind of workshops uh, as well so i think when i look at that chapter and i think about my sister's garden and that project she created it really goes beyond the colonial legacy of pain you know and 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 thinking about healing that healing requires healing ourselves from that trauma it also requires healing our nisma healing our land and she ended up naming that garden nisma and brought one of our our little nieces there because our um our relative named his daughter nisma <laughs> and brought her there for the opening of it for and for the naming of it it really is a story of hope and possibility of what you can do you know and she always says if you're not you know if if you're if you're not part of the solution you're part of the problem you know one little step and that's what i say at the end of that chapter you know this is one person in our community creating this major change we can all do it we we can't just sit back and say no what i'm gonna i'm not going to make an impact It makes an impact. It really, really does. So it's those small acts of decolonization that will allow us to survive and also allow us to
0: thrive. And it's another example of using food as an inroad to so much more. In this case, you know, as you said, you know, healing and revitalization, and also just changing people's relationship to land, completely changing around how people think about this space as a space of of trauma to a space of of resilience and healing, too. It's a a fantastic story. I'm glad glad we talked about it. Um, Yeah. So we've been talking a lot about different forms of decolonizing one's diet and in the in the book you describe a family who has really striven to kind of materially do just that and the kind of astounding results that they that they've seen in living a life being really committed to food sovereignty, not just in terms of health, but in terms of the relationship to the land itself. Can you talk a bit about this family and what it means to really decolonize one's diet?
1: Yes. And this was, I i had to put this chapter, and it's the last chapter in the book. And it really came uh, came about be- after I had gone to a um, a traditional foods gathering in our community in 2009, I think, I can't remember when it was but there was a woman there who was who had all these kids with her and she was talking about you know how she had transformed her diet or was attempting to transform her diet because she didn't want her children to lead to to live um eating foods from the colonizers and 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 having a colonizers diet and I thought that was so interesting. It was when I was just starting the research for this book and, uh, I said to my aunt, I need to, I need to meet this person. And her name was Nitanis Desj- Jarlet. And, um, I got to know her. I got to know her family. Nitanis is Cree from Northern British Columbia, married into our community, married John Rampanen. And they have, they now have seven children. When I met her, they had six children. And, um, in uh, 2010 she challenged her family to stop eating processed foods and industrialized foods um, as a way to decolonize their diets and to stop a generation of unhealthy eating habits she comes from a family that also has diabetes she's seen people uh, how diabetes has has taken the lives of people um, that were very close to her and she didn't want that to happen to her family and so they um, decided, and it was a major, major decision for them, that they decided after seeing how their bodies were shifting as they were doing this these decolonizing um, food programs within their family, and they started also working with uh, new channel communities on this as well, that they wanted to do something even more. Um, uh, in relation to this. And so in 2012, Nitanis and John made a major decision to move their family to a very remote area on Vancouver Island, um, an area that his family's connected to. They had some small cabins there that they used to go um, stay at in the summer months. And um, they decided to move their family there and to live off the grid. Um, They moved into this little 20 by 20 foot cabin. And then there was another smaller, I think, 15 by 20 foot cabin that their older daughter, who was 12 at the time, moved into. They had no electricity. They had a a wood stove for heating, a wood stove for cooking. And uh, they had to make a makeshift um, outhouse there. And they had a well um, that, that they could get water from. And they wanted to just live off the land in a way of their ancestors before we were colonized and before our traditional life ways were disrupted. And so they did. They started doing, uh, they lived out there for almost a year. Um, and she said, you know, when when in the conversations that we had when I was putting together that chapter, she says, you know, when we went out there at first, we had kind of these romantic notions about living out there and we're gonna come back and say we lived off the land and we did it and she says it reality just started checking it really started <laughs> um in when they you know they, they lost their boat there was a major major <laughs> storm their boat tipped over they had no way to get back and forth to the the mainland um they um their youngest I think at the time was three. So they had six kids be three, between three and 12 years old and they were homeschooling them. They'd already been homeschooling them, but they were doing things like going out in the water and getting clams. And she said, or John told me that he remembered the first time when he was doing clams, the, their little daughter, China, I think she was five at the time. She grabbed one of these, um these knives and they're very sharp knives that you need to stick into the clam and open the clam. And he said she was just there shucking clams. And he was like, Oh my God, she's going to cut off one of her fingers. <laughs> and then he pulled back and he says, no, this is, if we want to live this way, these are the challenges we're going to face. We just have to let our kids be a part of it. And to be a part of that environment we're we're, we're, we've brought them to. And, um, Naitana said one night they were sleeping and, um, they heard these sounds on the on the roof. And next thing she heard this noise, kind of like a plunking noise in the bed, in the bed she was in. She turned on the flashlight to see what it was. And there were these great big carpenter ants, these big black ants coming out of a hole in the cabin and falling down onto the bed and in her hair. And she has really thick curly hair. And she just started screaming. And she said, Okay, that's when it really hit me this is real <laughs> this is real and so I share some of those experiences when they left one one weekend and came back and Martins these little otter type um, animals went in there and broke all their the, the, were able to push their salmon jarred salmon down at the shelf and cracked them open and uh, they had all this, this reeking of all this food, leftover food that was there along with what they left over. That was uh, um part of that. And so she said, it really, it was an experience that um, in many ways just challenged them at the most deepest levels. But at the end, they understood how important it was what they were doing and understood that they could, when they left the year later and they, they left because of the, their boat situation. She was she became pregnant at, while they were out there. And she says, we never left. I was planning to have my child out there. That wasn't why we left. It was because they were having so much problem with the boat that if there was anything that happened to their kids or to them, they, they would be stuck out there. So they decided to move back in. They'd been out there again. They went back out um, during the pandemic. But he said, lessons learned. He said, we went out there and thought that everything was just gonna flow for us, that everything would be fine. Big lesson, it takes a community to bring up a family. He said, we're doing it without a community. We're just moving out there where indigenous peoples never did that. We all came together as a community to support each other. And he said, plus we were going there without even knowing our language. He said, it was like we were we were foreigners to that land. We are foreigners to that water. He always told me, wondered why he had such a real bad relationship with the water. He said, it's almost like it, every, it wanted to challenge me every step of the way. And he says, because here I was speaking the colonizer's language. And when he left, that was what he said he was going to do, was going to become proficient in our language. And he did five years later. He is now one of our leading language um, uh, teachers in our community, and uh, and has shared that online. He has wonderful um, videos online sharing our language, and he knew that it, you know, that it was important that language be a part of that connection and. As well as you know, all the foods that they were eating there, as well being connected to those foods, to those lands and waters. But there were other things that were part significant to our culture that um, he needed to bring there, so that he would be a, he and his family. He and Nitanis and their family would be accepted. It's a beautiful, really, really beautiful story, and I'm really, really glad that I was able to share it because what they attempted to do and what they did is really important to um, how we can decolonize. You know, we we, let's not look at it as something we can do. They did it, and. I can't even imagine doing it with one little child. Never mind doing it with six. And there they were. They're proof that um, that you can do it if you if you really challenge yourself and um, be committed.
0: Well, as we begin to, to to wrap up here, I want to talk a little bit about the end of the book. And you end with with a short conclusion, um, talking about and discussing Indigenous health during what you call a time of uncertainty here at the the start of the twenty twenties. And I'm curious. What do you mean when you talk about a time of uncertainty and how the challenges, uh, what, what kinds of challenges, crises like the COVID-19 pandemic and like climate change and how they've presented challenges to Indigenous communities throughout the Northwest, specifically when it comes to issues of food sovereignty?
1: Yeah, yeah. I wanted to end my book then because the last um, I was putting the final touches of on my book when um, the pandemic hit. Um and so my editor contacted me and said, you know, can you do can, you know, either have a chapter at the end or just share, um, you know, in uh, in um, the, you know, a couple of comments, a couple of paragraphs at the end of the book about, you know, that experience as you as you finished writing the book, because as I mentioned in the book, um I couldn't, for those two years, I couldn't go home. I mean, I could have went across the border. I am a Canadian citizen, but I would have had a hard time traveling. There was, you know, no one was traveling at the time. And, and you know, I it would have been hard to go back and forth. If I was back there, I would have had to stay there and leave my, my home here in Seattle. So I uh, I didn't see my family for two years. Other than through Zoom, which I'm, I should have wrote about that in my book, the Zoom with my elders, <laughs> no one knowing how to shut off their audio during Zoom. <laughs> but anyway, it was so funny. Um, but I was able to find a way to connect um, to them, and also um, language classes that that we had held in person in my community went online. And because I live here in Seattle, and the classes are usually during the fall into the late spring, when I come home in the summer, there usually aren't any classes, or if there are, there are only a few. I was able to start um, taking lessons. Um, I grew up with my language, but I was never fluent. Um, So that those taking those zoom language classes really helped me stay connected to my family. So I say even though we did see a lot of, you know, everybody has, you know, a lot of negative stories around COVID, at least that was one positive for me that it it would really help me um, be more proficient in my language. It really was. And thinking about COVID and and its impact on us and on especially on our health and wellness as Indigenous peoples, it revealed very stark contrasts between what we see as fortunate, the fortunate in society and the vulnerable in society and vulnerable um, people such as Indigenous peoples and people of colour the the virus impacted everyone you know it didn't discriminate in who was um uh who was impacted by it but the ability to respond to that virus was very unequal um and, and a lot of it because of the racial and and economic and social inequalities we see in in our societies as we see it here in the united states we see it in canada and other in other countries throughout the world um the effects of that virus really compounded when it came to people, to us indigenous peoples and to people of color, um, just finding um, adequate health care for one, which I address, you know, having fresh water many of our rural communities um experience um water inequality issues which you'd never think because we're on the you know we're here on the northwest coast that that we wouldn't but we do um even having access to basic things like hand sanitizer which my sister in her position in our community was very active in getting all of these things together for people there are staples like getting um, sanitizers and, and bringing fresh water to all our community members, especially to our elders. Um, but it was really difficult. Many of our people as well, including in my community, you'd have a lot of people living in one house. Well, what do you do when they tell you, when you get the virus, you're supposed to isolate? How do you isolate when there's eight people living in your house and you have three bedrooms? I mean, it was just those kinds of things that really made me think about. Um, how these diseases impacted us, how they, these kinds of of uh, viruses impact us and and all of that even being made worse by the fact that we still see how settler colonialism continues to impact us as in, as indigenous peoples um, with these assaults on our our political legal systems and our on our cultural identities. So it really um, yeah, made me think about the importance of us constantly striving for self determination and striving to um, to keep it healthy and to be healthy. And one major way is to um, to connect and stay connected to our food traditions. That that played a major major role. Many people that I know in our communities um, began. Um, Well, Gail's Garden really became very um, busy because a lot of people were going there and getting vegetables rather than going to the grocery store. People really, really making sure that when they um, harvested fish that, that they would have enough fish for that year. Um, again, as a way to just keep themselves away from any kind of contagions that were in the in the town that was that's close to our community. So it really made me think about that even on a, in a deeper level on the importance of of how to stay healthy. And very significant to that is keeping um, connected to our traditional foods and to um, Um, striving for health and wellness um, through those connections.
0: So I know that we don't have that much more time left, but I want to ask one question to kind of summarize uh, some some of the large points of the book. And I like to ask this question at the end of of, of my conversations to kind of get authors to think about their own work from a different perspective, um, to kind of put you in the shoes of someone that has read your book and maybe a year or a few years on down the line thinks back to this book? What would you hope they come away remembering or understanding a few years on down the road after reading it? book? Hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and I thought about that with it as well. I wanted it to be a book for everyone, that everyone could pick it up and and gain some knowledge from that book. Um, And I, I think the takeaway that I've, I've always wanted, not just from the book, from, from um, conferences and talks that I've done throughout the years, is that food plays a major role in our overall physical, emotional, and and dietary as well as spiritual wellness. That, that it's, I, I really hope the book motivates Um, folks to think about the foods you eat, you know, what do you eat? What are you putting in your, in your bodies and encourage people to make, healthy food choices. And, and I say that not that you have to go out and buy the most expensive organic foods. Or, you know, if you can not stay connected to those traditional foods, if you're from an indigenous community, and I've had urban indigenous people say that, well, yeah, you you still have a home in your community, you, you still have access to those areas where you where you berry pick and where you fish. But I'm an urban indigenous person living in Seattle. What can I do to be healthy? And I said, but you can be, you know, there's foods that you can eat that, are, that aren't are expensive. They may not be traditional, eating lentils and beans for one, foods that I I really love, but they are foods also that that are very inexpensive that people can incorporate that into their diets. But to think about this when you eat, and that doesn't mean that everything you eat, you have to be completely conscious about that it's going to be healthier. What kind of nutritional value, but just be cautious, conscious of it. You know, I, I am just because I've been that way since I was young. I'm always very conscious about eating right. And how it makes me feel because I can feel, I feel much better, much happier, much um, uh, emotionally um, uh, feeling uh, emotionally well um, by eating eating well. So rather than just looking at at foods, um, um, just for dietary reasons, even if we just can think about food as medicine, if we look at food as medicine and that um and think about that in a, in a larger way, you know what we do, the kind of lifestyle we lead that you know, laughing, being with people is also part of that medicine. being able to get out and exercise when we can that that's part of the medicine that it really will lead to a more positive and, and a, a more, um, I, I don't even know what you would say. In my community, in or in my language, it's called Hachatak Matzawak, that everything around you, everything is connected and interconnected. And if we think about it that way, not just as Indigenous peoples, but it, as a larger society, I think um we'll we'll see significant changes, not just in who we are, but in that in the larger landscape, in you know, in in just creating a healthy global society.
0: It's it's a through line to so much of what we've talked about today, right? That that that, yeah. that, that thinking about food can be an entryway for thinking about all kinds of decolonization, right? That that it's mm-hmm. it's a it's a great starting. So that was a big takeaway for yeah. me as well. Yeah. Um and then finally, Charlotte. Before we before we part ways, um, I'm curious what you're working on next. This book has won all kinds of accolades, and it's been out for for a couple of years now. But I'm curious. You alluded earlier to uh, a new project. Do you want to give us a brief preview of what you're working on next? Yeah, I'm working. I after I finish this one. I mean, if
1: for people who have have been never written a book, <laughs> when you finish, the last thing you want to do is think of your next one. <laughs> it's like all that's in your head is I'm never gonna write a book again it's so much work but it's fulfilling it's so fulfilling especially when it comes to fruition and you get to see and this one especially that I so much who I am and my family and my community are, are are entrenched in this book and it was it was a joy you know it was a challenge to write but it was also a major joy. I'm working on a couple of projects. Another book project. I'm working on a manuscript, but really just pulling the material together. I, as I mentioned earlier, I want. I'm doing research on how food contributes to our mental health, and how um, our diets that are rich in traditional foods can help um, prevent a wide range of psychological and mental health issues. Um, along uh, along with the dietary issues that we're experiencing in our communities I'm I really want to dive deeper into climate change and climate change's impact on our foodways. And um, I've been doing a lot of reading of the Indigenous scholar called Paus White's work. Uh, He does amazing work. He's a Potawatomi scholar, Um, amazing work on climate change. So I've been really um, using a lot of his work as a frame as I move forward with mine, and uh, especially looking at how climate change is um, impacting our food security. And here in the Northwest coast, especially as I mentioned earlier with ocean acidification, the warming of our waters, um, what that's going to do with our salmon, because salmon can live in, um, and I can't remember what the base temperature is, but if the temperature gets beyond a certain, um, if we see the oceans get beyond a certain temperature, salmon can't thrive in those waters what do we do i mean it it really has made me really think about that as i've seen a depletion of salmon stocks um throughout the northwest coast and what that, that would mean to us as uh it's a shot if we never have salmon so that's driving the research for my next book project and i'm also working on a film with uh, with some uh, um scholar friends of mine on Northwest Coast food sovereignty, because there there have been quite a few films and documentaries on indigenous foods and foodways, but most of them are focusing on agricultural-based societies. And I haven't really seen any that explore marine Based um, uh, cultures and societies, and I really want to use the, looking at water as the substance of our cultures. Land being the void, it's the it's the substance of who we are as indigenous peoples, um, coastal peoples is in those waterways, in those oceans, in the streams and the in the rivers, and I want to explore that and and possibly reach out to um Pacific Islander communities as well. I know a lot of people, Kanakana Kanaka Maoli and Hawaii, native Hawaiians who are involved in food sovereignty. I have a very good relationship with um with Mari's, um Maoris in Otoroa, New Zealand. And um and they have been very, very um Uh, active with my living breath of Wethlebolt Indigenous Food Symposium that I hold at the University of Washington every year. It was an annual event that I founded in 2013 and continue to share. And it brings people together from all over the United States, Canada, um, Otura, New Zealand. We had someone join us from one of the Amazon communities in Brazil. This last year, we've had people from Mexico, Indigenous people working in their communities, and it's developed this wonderful network of people. And so I just want to share that as well with your um, audience that we hold this event um, we're holding this year's event may 3rd and 4th and you can find more information at our website it's on our website living breath symposium living breath food if they are interested in learning more and there are a lot of photos and videos from past events on that website
0: and I'll be sure to put a link to to that symposium in in the show notes as well. Awesome. Do- Dr. Charlotte Cote is a professor of American Indian Studies at the University of Washington, and her award-winning new book is "A Drum in One Hand, A Sockeye in the Stories of Indigenous Food Sovereignty from the Northwest." Excuse me, from the Northwest Coast, which came out in 2022 with the University of Washington Press. Thank you so much for joining me today and speaking with to me today, Charlotte. It's been a real pleasure.
1: Thank you so much, Tleko, Tleko. It was a joy. Thank you, Steve.